Welcome to Unlocking Innovation, a podcast from EX3 Labs in 1871. We'll be talking to leaders in innovation about what keeps them ahead of the curve in today's atmosphere of rapid change and how they cultivate a culture of innovation within their organizations. I'm your host, Adam Wisniewski. Quick update before you listen to this week's episode. Since we interviewed Sophia Colucci, Miller Coors is rebranded as Molson Coors Beverage Company. Today's guest is Sophia Colucci. Sophia is the VP of Innovation at Miller Coors. She's credited with transforming the innovation approach at the industry staple and leads their growing portfolio of beverages. Her work has been widely praised among those in and outside of the industry for her smart risk-taking and efficient product launches in a time with more rapid changes and new challenges than ever before. Thank you for being here today, Sophia. Uh, Before we dive in, can you give listeners a quick overview of your career journey? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, so I've been, you know, out of university probably about 16, 17 years now, originally from Canada. Uh, so you'll hear it in my accent. Um, I started my career at a Canadian food company called Maple Leaf Foods. So kind of like um, a craft or Tyson of Canada. So for six, seven years, I worked there. I was in a management trainee program. So started, you know, doing different rotations and sales, finance, marketing, and really found my love for marketing. Um, marketing bacon was my last assignment. So that's always fun. (laughs) Um, Found my passion there and really had a lot of fun with it, which made me realize like I wanted to work at a company that was focused even more on, you know, consumer packaged goods and really leveraging consumer insights. So that's when I made the move to PepsiCo, who had been calling for a little while. And I wanted to, you know, go to a company that had a bit more of a global presence. So I was actually, I started out in PepsiCo in Canada. I was there for two years on the beverage side. And then um, I asked to be transferred to the U.S., um, and they made it happen, which was fantastic. Um, So I went to Chicago. So I was in the Chicago office uh, for about six years, um, you know, working on the nutrition brands, um, always a combination of marketing and innovation. So Quaker brands, um, you know, I touched on Life Cereal, Cap'n Crunch, uh, Quaker Chewy Granola Bars, all that fun stuff. Mm. Um, My last role there was an innovation role where I was really leaning into unlocking growth in what we were calling more of these um, new channels for us. So whether it was e-commerce or food service and uh, new business models, and it really opened up my eyes to the possibilities in innovation. And at that point, this was about two years ago, Miller Coors reached out and they had an open innovation role um, and it was just the perfect fit. So I've been at Miller Coors now leading the innovation team for the past two years. Fantastic. And my head is exploding now. You said three of my favorite things in the same sentence. You said Captain Crunch, Quaker oatmeal, and and bacon. Yes. <laughs> Bacon has always been the biggest draw. And for my entire life, I, I really learned how to channel it in a, in a very productive way for myself. <laughs> Fantastic. So yeah. what else was it? I, I have to imagine, especially you know, either out of college or early mm-hmm. on, CPG is, is not something people just say, I'm going to do this as a kind of a college mm-hmm. kind of focus. But w- what drew you to the industry? Yeah, I mean, look, like I was always growing up, like I think I was always an artistic child. Like I always like I love to draw, but I was very into math. And I was, you know, one of those nerds that was on student council and leading things and, you know, making things happen. And so I think that even just as I was growing up, like, you know, I always had part-time jobs. That was something that was very important to my parents. And I had a a job um, at a drugstore called Shoppers Drug Mart. It was a part-time job um, in Canada, very similar to like a Walgreens. And I remember, you know, stocking shelves or, you know, like, you know, being at the cash register and seeing people buy different products. 
And over time, I would wonder what their motivations were. Or I would see, you know, a package change in a hair color for L'Oreal. And I would think, hmm, I wonder what like they were thinking when they decided to do that. So I just got really interested in that. And then, um, you know, coming from like I was raised by immigrant parents from Uruguay. So very pragmatic. So they said, if you're going to study something, study something practical. And in Canada, you do undergrads in business. And that's what I studied. And I, you know, in second year, I took a marketing course and I said, wait, this is class. Like this is something (laughs) that I would, you know, want to learn on my own for fun anyway. And it was just such a natural fit. So I was pretty lucky that I, you know, I found that love right away. And with that deep background in CPG, mm-hmm. how have you? Um, how would you compare the difference between the alcohol and, and beverage industry? Oh, there's so many similarities. I mean, like there's, um, and I've been able to leverage a lot of them. Like at the end of the day, like we're working in these categories that are like older categories that, you know, that like obviously have these like really big brands that have a ton of consumer affinity, but there's a lot of challenges, right? There's a lot of disruption happening in both, you know, in CPG as in food and beverage. So like there's fragmentation of consumer choices. Um, There's new channels where they can shop. So whether it's like e-commerce or, you know, like new retailers opening up every day. Um, And what this is doing is it's leaving like all of these small startup brands, the opportunity to jump in and they are, they're more nimble and they're faster. So it's making it harder and harder for these big companies like the PepsiCo's or like the Miller Coors to be able to, you know, compete. And so that's where innovation becomes so important. And that's where having, you know, flexible innovation models and really, you know, uh, changing your portfolio, it makes such a big difference. Fantastic. So it sounds like the the transition wasn't that difficult. Obviously, you're dealing with these very large consumer-facing brands. There's an affinity on the consumer side. No, candidly, the transition, I think, in a way, like having worked at PepsiCo and the company Maple Leaf Foods beforehand actually set me up really nicely because what I would say is – the food and beverage landscape had been in this like uh, challenging time, I think, longer than alcohol had been. And so like my entire career, a lot of it has been around turnarounds. Like I've been used to it and I've been used to, you know, dealing in these environments where the business isn't doing that well. And you're constantly like it's a little bit of a churn and you have to stay positive and you have to find creative ways to do things. And look, when I came into Miller Coors, like I think that for a long time, like we had, you know, succeeded with Miller Light and Coors Light and and when I came in, things were starting to change. And I think I had that level of intensity <laughs> that I brought from PepsiCo that was needed. Yeah. Um, because like we like and, you know, my boss is the same way. She also came from CPG. And we just it's a different mentality because um, we've had to live through it for a little bit longer. And there's a book by I think it was an Intel founder, only the paranoid survive. And it sounds like that oh. mentality can kind of help out. Oh, I love that you say that because actually uh, one of our uh, one of our key he was uh, he um, handled revenue management. He once said to me, I remember we were in a, in a meeting, and he said he quoted me, and he said that I was uh, I had productive paranoia. And at first, I thought <laughs> I like that. I was really insulted, like what is this, you know? But then I looked it up, and then I actually like I was like, oh, this is pretty good. And then I had at the time I didn't have a boss, so I was reporting straight into Gavin, our CEO, and we were in a, like we had our one on one, and I. I said, you know, I think I have productive paranoia. And then we both agreed it's a good thing. And it's because like 
I really, I'm always, I don't want to say I'm always second guessing myself or decisions, but I'm not taking it for granted that things are going to work out because I've just seen like you launch something, you work on something, things are going to change. Like you have to be able to pivot. You have to be able to learn. You have to be able to react. And that's just the way the world is working now. Absolutely. Especially Mm -hmm. it seems to me, you know, in in a business that might be considered really low margins, making sure that you're getting every... Every piece of value out of out of that transaction with the consumer possible. So, yeah, absolutely, for yeah. sure. And stuff. So Crane has praised you personally as being at the epicenter of the the beer company. What, what they're saying is the beer company of the future, and thinking through that in the future sense. So why do you think the industry is changing so much? I mean, a little bit of what we talked about earlier, just like some of the big disruptions that are happening like across um, total food and beverage are starting to come into alcohol. And I would say that like the unique challenges that alcohol has is like if you think about it, um, when you look at consumer trends, like first of all, people are drinking less. Like that's a known fact. And when they are, and you've heard about dry January, right, and sober curiosity. But then um, when they're drinking less, they're starting to drink more wine and spirits. And then even within beer and, you know, flavored malt beverages, we've seen this explosion. And I think everyone knows what I'm about to say of White Claw and of hard seltzers, right? And so it's just been, it's been like a truly transformational time when it comes to alcohol and when it comes to big beer companies like ourselves. And so what we we really need to do. And if you think of Miller Coors, like we've got some phenomenal brands and we have great expertise. But look, a lot of our portfolio right now is more in Miller Light and Coors Light and in those premium light segments. And so what we really need to do is figure out a way to transform our portfolio. So we're and our strategic approach when we think about our innovation, like first and foremost, our goal is to recruit new consumers into our portfolio. And we have three big priorities. It's modernizing beer. So even our existing brands, how do we modernize them with really relevant innovation? How do we double down on flavor? So think of things like those hard seltzers I talked about. Um, We launched Cape Line this year. It's been successful. We've got some really interesting hard seltzers down the pipeline and then growing beyond beer, right? So things like moving beyond into things like canned wine. We launched a test market of canned wine earlier this year and it was a personal passion point of mine. It's done really well. So we're launching it nationally next year or um, we're doing a test uh, with La Colombe. So it's a partnership with La Colombe. So you've probably heard of them and um, we're doing a hard coffee with them. So really trying to shift away from the things we've traditionally done. You mentioned modernizing beer. So mm-hmm. I'm curious, what does that entail? Is that operation side? Is it across the entire – is it supply chain focused? Is it ingredients? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the way I'm thinking of modernizing beer, it's modernizing the way consumers perceive beer and the way that they're perceiving our brands within beer. So um, – For instance, um, if you take some of our existing brands like Coors or Blue Moon, these are really fantastic brands. They have amazing brand awareness. And in the past, we've probably shied away a little bit from doing core innovation. And and we've seen, you know, some of our competitors maybe take – their existing brands and take them to spaces they shouldn't be taking them. And so when I first came in two years ago, it was like, that was a big no-no. But I came from a world where 
I believe if you do core innovation the right way, so if you think about what are like the equities that you're trying to build and what are the things that are meaningful for consumers, you can actually help to elevate your brand and recruit new consumers. So a good example is um, Blue Moon. So this is how we're modernizing Blue Moon. Blue Moon, um, you know, you've probably tried like our wheat beer. Um, it's awesome. It's brewed with Valencia orange. It's a great beer. Um, a lot of women like it as well, too. It's a little heavier, like you can probably drink one or two of them. And so one of the, when we were talking to consumers that drank Blue Moon, one of the ideas is what if we were to come up with a more sessionable Blue Moon? And that was what really um, spurred up the idea with a new launch that we have called Blue Moon Light Sky. So it's everything you love about Blue Moon, but it's 95 calories, lower carb, brewed with real tangerine peel. So it's still, you know, drawing on those equities that Blue Moon has, but making it even more relevant for consumers to recruit them into new occasions. And so that's a good example of modernizing beer. So it's essentially kind of the adjustment of kind of the consumer needs. Correct. Correct. Um, So for instance, like we have another product that we're launching and this one, um, you know, we did it quite quickly. Um, It's uh, it's a Coors proposition and we're calling it Coors Pure. So it's uh, it's going to be made with three simple ingredients. So knowing that, you know, simple ingredients are really important for consumers. So organic barley, hops, and water, and it's 100% certified organic. Um, and then some of the flavors are actually going to have, it, we're going to have a original, a berry, and a citrus. And so we're really, you know, offering consumers a more elevated Coors proposition. And so that's another example of how we're modernizing a brand that has been around for years and years and making it more relevant for consumers. Interesting. And part of my goal is to try, especially for the listeners mm-hmm. who are, might be responsible for an innovation initiative at their respective organization, to draw parallels from some for of the, sure. the, the stuff that, that our guests say. So it sounds like on the modern, uh, modernizing um, beer, it's really about experimentation as well. Mm-hmm. So um, how does testing play a role in, in some of the aspects of the modernizing piece? Yeah. I mean, testing is a huge piece of it. So I think we do testing a number of ways. Like It goes without saying that when we are looking at propositions, like we do a lot of testing with consumers. So, you know, we have a a panel of always on 10,000 consumers that we, it's a electronic overnight panel. So it's an online community where we can get every answers on flavors, on product names, and we can test things very quickly. So that's like very, very helpful for us. Um, you know, we do traditional testing, whether it's bases or PRS, which is like shelf studies. But the thing that we're trying to push more and more towards is in-market testing. So launching things in a few markets and seeing how they're, how they're doing. And that's something that I really believe is important to do in innovation because, you know, I know one of the questions you had mentioned earlier that you might ask is like, you know, the correlation between innovation and failure. (laughs) And like, I think it's quite high. And that's something that I've learned over years and years. And so the more of these test markets that you can do, um, where you, you know, you launch into maybe three, three test markets and you do it the right way, you put the right level of investment, but it's not going to it's not going to be as risky because you're not investing everything into it. Um, you can learn, you can see how it performs, and then if it does well, you can always scale it up in a bigger way. And so that's something that you know we've started to already do. We did it on Movo, the canned wine I talked about this year. We're doing it on La Colombe. We did it with a product, Saint Archer Gold. Um, it's a, um, a premium light beer mm-hmm. that we're going to be launching in a bigger way next year. So um, those are the things that we're trying to do more and more of. And how would you describe, I guess, the, the role one that data plays, but also 
how does the process work for identifying what needs to be tested in the in the first place? Is it kind of a, a shotgun test across all of your portfolio? Is it a scenario where maybe you say this particular uh, item within a portfolio is seeing a dip in sales in mm. a specific region or area, and that triggers what you would consider an experiment or a test. You mentioned Blue Moon with the heaviness. How does that even get identified in the first place? Uh, wow, that's a, yeah, that's a big question because I think what I would say is um, there's so many different scenarios and we have so many different testing methodologies. The first thing is I'm very lucky that I have an insights team. So I've got, you know, a few great insights partners who specialize in this. And so typically, you know, I think it really depends on what we're trying to do. So for instance, like if... Um, if I have a if I have a hypothesis where I say I believe that there's an opportunity for us to um, you know uh, innovate on the Blue Moon brand, one and you know you mentioned the example of Light Sky. What you can do is you can say, okay, well, a good you know good way to find out what some of the opportunities are for Blue Moon is maybe talking to existing Blue Moon consumers, and sometimes you might talk to like some of the heavier medium consumers or even the light ones. It depends on who you're trying to target, and ask them like, what do you like about Blue Moon? What do you not like about Blue Moon? Right. So find some of those motivators and barriers, and then that's a good way to get to an insight, right? And so this insight that Blue Moon is kind of heavy, by the way, is not like mind-blowing. It's something that I actually kind of felt um, in my gut when I first started the company. And I think that's actually one of the things for your listeners, too, is that like oftentimes, like, you're usually pretty smart and you probably have a pretty good handle of what's happening. And sometimes, if anything, you might do some insights to validate a hypothesis that you might have. And so in that case, like we got a lot of data that said, yes, like there could be an opportunity there, you know? And so that was like something that we did with like qualitative groups. But then once we started to, you know, really flesh the idea out, we put together a concept statement for it. And that's when you actually might, you know, do a little bit more rigorous quantitative testing. And so you actually, you know, go to panels and you talk to like a bigger number of consumers. So it's statistically significant and you put some different statements in front of them and you get a sense of whether this is something that's appealing for them. And so that's when you get a better handle of something. So I can go through more and more steps, but that's an example of how we might approach an initiative like that. Sure. And on the intake side, on the insights piece, how much of this, um, how much of, of partnerships play a role in some of the intake with, with data? Obviously, consumers consume alcohol, especially at large venues, for mm-hmm. example. Um, do some of those large venues really play a part in supplying some of that data and that feedback and in, in are involved in the testing process? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, like for, for sure. So, for instance, like every time we um, we launch a product or, you know, we're out on premise and in these venues, the more like feedback we can get, the better. We have a really big field marketing team that's out, you know, on the streets with consumers and we're getting that direct feedback. So, for instance, this year we... Um, we launched Cape Line and it's a sparkling cocktail platform. And at the time we were trying to get a sense of, you know, which flavor was resonating strongest with consumers. And so we were doing a big uh, sampling on Lakeshore and we actually got some iPads out there and we started asking consumers just preferences around flavors. So anytime we have an opportunity to do that, we will. Um, Another, so I think that's a good example. Um, Another place where I solicit a lot of feedback is through 
customer meetings. So not necessarily consumers, but customers like the Walmarts, the Targets of the world. That's been something that um, I've instituted here, which we weren't doing as much before. But um, I feel like getting um, those conversations earlier with those customers is really helpful because, look, they're seeing innovation from every competitor out there, right? And they they have a really deep knowledge and understanding of the category. So I'm one of those people, my, I firmly believe like good ideas can come from anywhere. Good insights can come from anywhere. And so like, I'm not precious about it. It's just like, where can I get it? And if there's a good idea, like, great, let's go and execute it. I love it. So there's an interesting story uh, behind Cape Line Sparkling Cocktails. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you mind sharing? Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, um, when I came on, um, like we had to do quite a bit of work to try to ramp up our innovation pipeline. And um, at the time, you know, we were going to launch a hard coffee, a different proposition to La Colombe, and that was going to be our big bet. Um, but candidly, I don't think that we were quite ready. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, we identified was we had this opportunity for a better for you beverage that had more flavor. We were seeing that hard seltzers were growing. At the time, we already had a hard seltzer, so we didn't want to go there, but we said we believe there's a white space for better for you with more flavor. And we had this idea, and it was initially going to be for 2020, but that's when you know my CEO asked, like, what can you do to accelerate it for 2019? So basically what we did was cut 10 months from the timeline. And so we called it Project Sprint, and, uh, and at the time, like we said, okay, like, Everyone's going to get behind this. Like, this is going to be our big bet. Um, so, I mean, like, you know, we've gone back a lot and we've said, like, w- how are we able to make that happen? Because now that timeline is what we have to do going forward all the time. <laughs> and so, you know, I think that some of the big things that we really held ourselves accountable were, like, everyone agreed it was a big bet. We had major stakeholders involved along the way. Um, we were really clear on what some of the non-negotiables were. So, for instance, like, it was, like, there, it was imperative to me. This had to be a clean ingredient line. Like we needed to have like a, a new alcohol source and what we were using in the past. And, you know, at the first couple of weeks, like there were a lot of conversations that said, oh, we can do it faster if we use something else. And that's when I think people were like, who's this crazy lady? I said, <laughs> absolutely not. And I pounded my fist on the table. I'm like, we have to do it this way just because like those are some of the non-negotiables. Um, and, and that's what we were able to do. And look, and like I, I'd say the other thing is like, being flexible and like while you're moving really quickly, being able to course correct really quickly. So like a good example at the time was, you know, we we knew we had this idea and we had great packaging, but it wasn't quite there. And I remember going to a customer meeting and this was, you know, we launched it in April and this was September. We were about to finalize the packaging. And I remember the customer just ripped the packaging apart. Like I, I like left from that meeting probably close to tears. And I came back to my team and I said, guys, like it was really good feedback. Like we have to find a way to like make this better. They're right. And it was honestly, it was some of the gut instincts that we already had of the mm-hmm. changes we had to make. And we worked with our design partners and we got it done. So I think it's like, um, I think the last thing I would say, and my team's going to laugh when I say this, like we had this mantra, like one last push, like even though we were moving really, really quickly, like it's like, how do you make sure you get the best proposition out there possible? And so I think like those were really good learnings for us going forward. And look, like now, all the innovation that we're doing, we've just accelerated the things that we're, how we're going about it. And 
our entire organization has stepped up. So whether it's R&D, supply chain, because we have to. Like yeah. we have to because like it can't, it's unacceptable for us to take a year and a half to two years to launch innovation. Like we just have to move quicker. It's so interesting you say that. Last week I gave a talk here, here at 1871, and the theme was around um, how some of the best songs, um, uh, the greatest songs of all time can inspire innovation. Mm. And one of the themes was around changing your pace, changing your tone. Because yeah. one of the, the parallels with the, the best songs in the world is that they have a different cadence um, depending on what part of the song you're in. Mm-hmm. So they have a, a tendency to change beat and speed it up quite a bit. And that was part of the theme of innovation. And essentially what it sounds like you're saying is that that 10 months that it took you to hit that that sprint, that timeline, in order to achieve something you haven't achieved before, essentially set a new benchmark within the company Correct. around speed and efficiency related, related to innovation. Correct. And look, like at this point, 10 months is okay. Like for instance, like Movo, which is the canned wine, a wine spritzer that you guys can Google it. We have it out there. It's it's in a test market right now. So I would say our social media is not to the standards that I would like. Um, but um, but we got that out in four months and that that's incredible. I mean, that was a completely different capability. That was one where it was a partner that I had worked with in the past and we basically outside, outsourced the production and the go-to-market so they actually were able to manufacture the liquid for us and they were able to sell it in partnership with our distributors. So we decided, you know, last December we were going to do this. I uh, flew out one of my best R&D liquid developers that we have in the company. He went out to California. He made the liquid up. We had a killer package and name and we got it out in market in March. Um, so, I mean, that's the kind of thing that I want to do more and more of. And, and look, that was just a test. It was three markets. And it's not like we were looking to make money there, but it was amazing how quickly we could do it. And now we have real in-market learnings and, um, and we've been able to course correct some things and we're launching it in a big way come March next year. I love it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's such an important point. And again, I, I don't want to belabor it, but no. I certainly want to make sure that it's recognized by the listeners. Because mm-hmm. one thing especially that I want to hone in on, you said, was the non-negotiables. Mm-hmm. I think what we find so often is that you've got these folks in an innovation lead scenario. Um, and certainly they have a mandate from th- their boss or their CEO. Um, there's a timeline associated with it. But those non-negotiables yeah. you were unwavering on. Yeah. And, and look, and there will be others that I will waver on, right? You just have to pick the ones that are the most important. And what I would say is, like, think of what's fundamental to the proposition that if you didn't have this claim or if you didn't have this certain ingredient, it would flop. And so that's what you really have to you know, be clear about. So I heard a quote that, that, that uh, Sidney Portier said. He said, uh, interesting thing happens when you take a walk with somebody. Either they adjust to your pace or you adjust to theirs. So as you adjusted your pace, what was the reaction like internally? Because I, I have to imagine that it shook up the organization quite a bit. It did. It did. And I think um, where I'm incredibly lucky, and I'm not just saying this because they're my bosses, is that I got a lot of like support from the leadership team. <laughs> and I think it's honestly because of like where we were at in the organization. They were just like, yeah, we're ready for change. Let's go. Sure. And, um, and uh, you know, I've been in other organizations where I think there's been more resistance at the top, mm-hmm. which has made it harder. Um, you know, I, I have to commend like the people at Miller Coors, like it's just like it's a team of super collaborative, like people that don't have egos. And that's been awesome because like, 
there have been ups and downs, you know, there have been conversations with my team and, you know, like we now have a new mantra in our marketing department, which came on after I was already there by my new CMO, which is called Fast Messy Awesome. And (laughs) my team was already living it. So it's funny when she came on at the time, my CEO was like, oh, you guys are going to love each other. You're the same person. We're very similar. Um, But yeah, that's kind of the mantra that we have now. And, and it doesn't make everyone comfortable. Right. And, but we really believe that that's the way we have to operate in this new environment. So one of the things you know about your industry, obviously, is with many industries, is how much how risky it can be, especially mm-hmm. on the experimentation side. It's very competitive. Mm-hmm. Everybody's fighting for that shelf space, etc. Totally. Um, in terms of embracing experimentation, can you do you have any advice for listeners on, on how to really instill that throughout a culture? Yeah. So I mean. My advice would be, like, how can you think about calculated risks? How can you think about experimentation that allows you, like, the window to fail? Because that's really what's going to lend itself to the most creativity. So, um, you know, if I go back to some of the examples that I talked about, whether it was, like, Movo or La Colombe, the reason that my team was able to move fast and was able to experiment and said, hey, yeah, we're going to take this uh, chance with this partner is because we didn't say, like, this has to be, like, a huge bet in year one. We said, like, let's test it out in a couple of markets, do it the right way, and so experiment with it um, versus go all in on it. And then what ends up happening and what I've seen in the past is when you – when you make everything a big bet, then you put much higher expectations around it. And all of a sudden, your sales targets become much, much higher. And you know you have to spend a lot more money. So everything just ends up becoming so much more of a risk. And people then start to get a little bit like they get stuck and they're afraid to make those tough decisions because everything becomes so much more amplified. Right. So if you can take more of those calculated risks, and I've given you some examples, like we have to do a lot more of those. And we're going to start. We now have more partnerships um, in multiple and cores that we're going to be doing more of these types of experiments. What I would say, like the biggest, biggest takeaway for your listeners is like, how can you do them in controlled ways so that you can be more creative? Small market releases, for example. Correct. Fantastic. So what would you describe as the greatest challenges related to innovation? Yeah. I mean, look, I think... um, I think sometimes like from an innovation perspective, like, and I face this every day, like we feel like we're onto something and we feel like we're excited about it. And then all of a sudden we're like, oh, it wasn't that good of an idea (laughs) or like it didn't test out that well. So it's like, there is always like that, like insecurity or being scared on like, are my ideas good enough? And is this going to be big enough? So that's always something that we're trying to, you know, fight. Um, I think some of the other like challenges that we have are just like, look, there's not an infinite amount of resources and dollars to work with, right? And so we're trying to put more of a focus to innovation, but I was just having the conversation with someone today, like, I wish I could be doing more, but we just need the resources to make it happen. So it's it's just innovation takes dollars, it takes people, it takes resources. And so you just have to be choiceable about where you're going to be putting your investments. So obviously you've you've played a, a, a lot of roles within your career as a whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious, just in general, what companies do you admire most, and where do you draw inspiration from? Yeah, I mean, look, like I, it's a combination. So um, when I first came to uh, Miller Coors, 
I think that everyone on my team will say, well, Sophia really likes RX Bar <laughs> and obviously a Chicago company. And, you know, I, I know some of the people that have worked there from the beginning, but I think that's just like a great example of a company that, you know, started out with uh, a product that really delivered on the consumer need. Um, and they started obviously, you know, with like with athletes um, and uh, and they delivered something that like works. And now it's like it's gone beyond just like the, you know, athletic community. It's gone to like very, very mainstream. And I really what I admire about the way they started was like they started from the ground up and they didn't really take investments. They just made it happen themselves. Um, so I definitely admire that. Um, look, another company I admire is the company I came from, which is PepsiCo. Like I, I still, you know, follow PepsiCo on LinkedIn and I see and I cheer from the sidelines for all the accomplishments because I think it's just an excellent example of a company that is like hunt, like very, very old with all of these established brands that has continued to reinvent itself and um, premiumize its portfolio and be able to adjust what they're offering to consumers based on what consumers are looking for. And I think like Indra Nui's legacy is definitely something there in terms of what she was trying to do from a sustainability perspective, a better free perspective. But I, but I think like that's just an, a good example. Like you don't have to just be a startup. You can be a big company um, and you can continue to transform yourself. So in terms of your team makeup, mm-hmm. um, how, how big is a, a team that allows you to be as nimble as you are? Yeah, I mean, our teams are evolving as we speak. <laughs> we're just uh, we're reorganizing ourselves right now. Um, but um, I lead the innovation team, and you know, it's probably going to be around uh, 15, 17 people, like total on my team. And um, what we're trying to do, like I used to have us broken out into people who were developing the pipeline upstream, and then those that were commercializing it, and then owning some of the innovation. Um, what I'm going to try to do is to um, focus my team more around some of our strategic priorities. So getting people focused on beer, so modernizing beer, flavor, and then growing beyond beer. And then within those teams, you know, having people that are more specialized in certain brands um, or, you know, even um, I mentioned Movo, the the new partnership that we had. I'll have someone that owns those partnerships, and that's always constantly thinking, like, what's the next creative thing that we can be looking at? You know, um, what are other partnerships that we can be exploring? Um, so, in general, like, what we're trying to do is give people focus areas, but then give them some like room to be creative too. And if you had to have a dream team, let's say of five roles, um, what what would that be made up of from a functional area? Oh, I mean, like, look, like, I just have an innovation team. The reality is nothing's going to happen without my cross-functional partner. So if I had to think of a dream team, it would be probably someone on my innovation team, like someone on innovation to kind of, like, you know, steer the ship and get things done. But then I would obviously need to have an amazing R&D person who could actually brew our products. I'd have to have someone like really smart on the insight side who could like help me come up with all the consumer insights. Um, probably want a finance person, a strategy person to make sure that we're actually making money in all of this. Yep. Um, and then a killer salesperson who can just go out and like sell the product like there's no tomorrow. Fantastic. So last question of the day, most important question of the day, what's the one app on your phone that you can't live without? Oh, that is so easy for me. It's Spotify. Spotify. Oh, yeah. I am obsessed with, like, I love music. Like, I, and when you brought up that that point around, like, songs, I'm like, oh, yes, I have songs that pump me up. I have playlists that make me happy. Like, it's, yeah, like, I, I grew up 
all the time, like listening to music, and it's just uh, it's I can't live without it. So, qu- quick quiz then, because I, I featured five of what would can be considered the top twenty five songs of all time. Can you guess any of the ones that were on that list? Oh God! Well, definitely like a Beatles song for sure. Oh. Um, Led Zeppelin, Stereo to Heaven. Heaven. Yep. Yeah, uh, uh, two out of two right now. Really <laughs> <good>. <laughs> oh God, I'm trying to think of other ones. Um, hmm, like I'll give you a hint. '90s grunge. Oh, uh, Nirvana. Yep. Uh, okay, so we've got Nirvana. We've got Beatles. We've got Led Zeppelin. <sighs> give me other hints. Uh, Hawaiian shirts. Oh, uh, oh, really? Um, Beach Boys. Yep. Good uh, vibrations. Good vibrations. Okay. And then we're, what's the fifth one? The, the the fifth one is actually the top song ranked of all time, and of course, is all subjective. But uh. oh, oh, it's not um, Queen. Yes. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody. Okay. That's right. Wow. <laughs> All right. Five out of five. <laughs> I think you might enjoy a, a career in music. I, do, <laughs> I really like music. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, it was a pleasure having you here today. We really appreciate it. If anybody's interested in, in uh, keeping in contact with you or Miller Coors, where would you suggest they uh, they go? Oh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, uh, you can find me on Facebook. I'm easily searchable. Fantastic. <laughs> Colucci. Thank you for your time today. Okay, thank you. Remember to subscribe to Unlocking Innovation wherever you listen to podcasts and be sure to rate and review. To stay up to date with EX3 Labs news and events, follow us on social media. We're at EX3 Labs. See you next time.